Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you to open up your Bibles now and to turn to James chapter 4. Uh, this is on page 1,884. And we're going to be continuing in our series in uh, James in this, uh, this look at what does it mean to be undivided people. Uh, we've been following this, this theme of um, our lives are not meant to be divided between the things we believe and the things that we do, uh, that there's meant to be a unity, there's a harmony, there's a wholeness that God calls us towards. Uh, something that I just want to mention about uh, James too. And I've said this several times already, but, but James's wisdom literature, uh, it is um, maybe best to understand James by looking at other forms of, of wisdom literature in, in the Bible, particularly in Proverbs. So I'm going to reference Proverbs a couple of times and to give that background that, that James is kind of aware of Proverbs and he's, he's quoting it, he's unpacking it in, in meaningful ways. Uh, but before reading God's word... Uh, Let's come before him in prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for the words we just sung of being more aware of your presence, uh, being more aware of your goodness. May we see your, your presence and how you are calling us uh, through your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. James chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 11 and reading through to five, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on in business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then, if you know the good that you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed the fields are crying against you. 
The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. I asked Pastor Ben a week and a half, two weeks ago, whether or not we should just change the passage around because it didn't really seem too fitting for ordination service. Uh, But he said, no, don't change anything, kind of nothing uh, on my behalf. But I still felt I wanted to connect something. So um, I'll just get it over with right in the beginning here. Um, When I began my lead role here at Living Hope, uh, I was asking around different friends, different people who were a few years ahead of me in ministry, saying, Kate, do you have any advice, um, any, any particular thing that you've learned that would be helpful? And, and one person had said to me, when you make your plans, the things that you want to do, make these plans with open hands. And that really, that really stuck with me. And, and I entered into ministry thinking, okay, don't hold on to the things that I want to do that I really want to see too tightly. And boy, did that actually end up paying off quite well. Um, He gave that advice having no idea that a pandemic was right around the corner. Um, And a lot of the plans that I had, the things, what I thought ministry was going to look like in my first few years, uh, it looked quite a bit different. And I was really grateful for that advice. Have open hands. See where God may be working in the ways outside of what you had seen. Uh, but this, this piece of advice wasn't just for the pandemic. Sure, it, it worked well in that circumstance, but this advice actually came from someone who, in his first years of ministry, um, experienced pretty serious sickness, uh, illness that prevented him from being able to even do the, anything that he wanted to do. Uh, he found himself kind of trying to hold on, saying like, no, I, I really need to do these things that I had planned. And once he was able to release them, he could see that the care that he was receiving from the congregation was actually moving them into this wonderful relationship where discipleship was happening in different ways than he had planned or imagined. So that image of making our plans with open hands here has kind of those two dimensions of it. We're not holding on to the things that we want, as we see here. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day will bring. We don't hold on to the things that we think we can accomplish for tomorrow, but also this openness, this this being able to receive what God may have for us is embedded into that posture. And I bring up Proverbs 27 verse 1 because James seems to be playing off of it a little bit in verse 13 here. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Notice that in both of these lines here, we have this common strand of needing open-handed living and planning. 
The, the big problem in this, especially as you read forward, is kind of this arrogant scheming that happens. These people think that they can plan without being open to how God may be working in and through them and in their circumstances. They set all their plans just around their own pride, their own selfishness. Now, to go back uh, to a visual from uh, two weeks ago, uh, these people, the people that are unwise that James is referencing here, are not filtering everything through the rightly ordered life. So we had this visual um, where God, uh, so these are our desires kind of working up and down here, and God was meant to be the highest desire that we have. The rightly ordered life has God at the top. And, and when that happens, whether it's our kind of our leisure time, our hobbies, our family, our, our finances, wh whatever the things that we have desire for, that they are seen as ways of giving glory to God. They're seen as gifts from God and ways of bringing glory to Him. In this proverb, and in Proverbs, we find the person is in their pride. They, they put other things at the top. They're, they're no longer seeing these things, the, the finances, their wealth, the, the business that they plan on doing as a means, as a way of glorifying God, uh, but a way of securing their own wealth. And to be clear, uh, the, the problem in our passage here isn't that the people are planning to do business. Uh, they're, they're somehow doing something secular and not good. It's not that the remedy is that the people should have said, tomorrow we'll become pastors and missionaries and lead successful churches. It's, the whole piece of it is that they are trying to do these things on their own strength and their own kind of boastful power, their own arrogant scheming. They aren't open to how God may be working in the midst of it. There's a, there's a personal gain that is found in here. There's a pride that's found in here. And I think this can be seen a little bit more clearly. Oh, I skipped ahead. Uh, this can be seen a little bit more clearly when we get to chapter 5, and we see where the judgment is in store for those who are in selfish, um, whose selfishness around their money has kind of carried them. Their wealth in chapter 5, we'll see, has rotted. It's gone bad. Uh, this reminds me of a story in, in Exodus where God provides manna for the people, and the people, rather than just collecting what they need, they, they want to hoard it. They want to collect more than the other person next to them. The vision that they have is not flourishing for all, but trying to get ahead, trying to secure their own security apart from God, and when they wake up, there's maggots in it. This is an early lesson that Israel had, that it's collecting, this hoarding, that it stinks. And this, this is repeated over and over again. We find this in Deuteronomy as, as the people are being led into the promised land. They're supposed to be careful as they find permanence in the land, as they accumulate wealth, that they'll start to think that they did this on their own power. They're supposed to be reminded that it was God who took them through all of this, that God was the one who saved them. James, through both of our sections here in our passage, is talking about how the wealth has, has rotted, how it, how it stinks. He's saying 
nothing new or original for us in that point. He's continuing this Old Testament teaching. His argument follows when when people begin to make their plans apart from God, when God's will is no longer considered a facet of life, so so when when we don't look for God's will in our uh, treatment of finances, for example, then that thing will show itself to be empty, that, that this thing, whatever we place on top when it is not God, then it falls over. Uh, It it will rot. It won't last. Uh, We need these reminders of being able to put put money, uh, to put whatever we have that can raise its way to the top, to put it down into its proper place. Uh, One of the ways that we do this in the church, uh, we have a time of giving in our service. It's, It's actually part of our worship It's part of our spiritual formation as people who are called to live open to how God may be guiding us. We do this practice week after week, taking part of our time in our worship service here because we look forward to the space where we can give out of gratitude for what God has done for us. It's a practice of putting money in its proper place, seeing it as a gift, And just an added note around here, Uh, this is uh, just something that I I don't know what to do with, but something about online giving that I don't really like, Um, there's a way that it forms us that's a little bit different, because it no longer happens during the service unless you're really quick on your phone. Um, It's no longer in that context of corporate worship. And we need to have extra reminders that if we're doing giving in that way, that that are clicking on our computer, that are are tapping on our phones, that this is actually part of our worship, this is part of our spiritual formation, something that we do before God. Another big loss that kind of comes alongside it while we're on the subject is especially for those of you who are parents. When we transition to online giving, it's less visible for your kids. So make sure that you're intentional in inviting them into that process to talk to them about it. When your children see you giving, they know that it's something that we prioritize. We know that it's something that's valuable to us. It's part of this, the spiritual formation that we need to be doing. If you don't or find places of encouraging and modeling this, they miss that part of formation. Uh, a visual that I've found helpful um, comes from a pastor in Vancouver who took a, a $10 bill, and he said that, that when we give in the offering, we're doing a, at least three different things. We're saying, first, thank you, God. Uh, you have taken care of me. Uh, and I, I like that language there. It's saying thank you to God. It, it's saying thank you... For the, to the God who has given us these good things that we are giving back from the graciousness that we've received. Saying second, that we want in on what God is doing in the church. That we're excited about God's movement in and through the church. We've seen uh, today through the ordination, uh, the sign of God's faithfulness. And this is a, a way that we can say we want in on what God is doing. And third, We're saying that money doesn't control us. 
We're saying, money, you don't control me. You don't determine everything. I can just give it away because it's not my idol. Now, do you have ways of communicating these things with your, your children? Do you have ways of reminding these things to yourselves? These are important parts of our formation. It's a way of living that is open-handed. It's an important part of our posture of our hearts. But if we think that this is all that we need to do, then I think we're also missing what James is talking about here. The ultimate point of our passage extends beyond that. It's not like there's some magic rule that once you've given to the church, the rest of what we do with our money doesn't matter. It's not like giving to the church blindfolds God and now he can't see what you do with the rest of your money. There is a wholeness in how we treat our finances. All of life is meant to be lived in humility before God as we saw earlier in chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago. And we get this reminder in chapter 5 where James tells the wealthy to weep and wail because of the ministry, or misery that's coming to them. And that misery that's coming to them isn't coming because that the wealth is, is rotting away or that it's rusting. That's not the problem. Their misery is actually that, that the rusting, that the fact that the, the wealth has just sat there to rust, the rust itself is testifying against them. It is showing that they have accumulated simply kind of out of their pride for themselves and their selfishness rather than as a means of generosity, as a means of being open to how God desires us to live with our wealth. Reading on, we can see the problem wasn't so much with wealth itself, but with the withholding of wages with the luxury and self-indulgence. It even says the murder of the innocent person. Essentially, it's, it's the type of person who has ignored God's will in the midst of their actions. And, and I think in, in the midst of that, there's two of them that are pretty clearly uh, things that are wrong. Uh, the withholding of wages, the murder of the innocent person, uh, the, the church is meant to be a prophetic witness, uh, someone that cares for the, the poor and the marginalized, and we've seen that over and over in James. But the call against luxury and self-indulgence is perhaps a little more challenging. We live in a culture where if we're generous with a little bit of what we have, then, then we just kind of have permission to do whatever we want with the rest. We have messaging from our culture that, that you've earned it, that you can just simply indulge yourself. Uh, reading from outside of North America, uh, if we read commentators on James, let's say in uh, South America, when they read these pa this passage, uh, they're actually, they take time to say, if you're reading this in North America, this, this kind of looks like you. Um, they invite us to really take these words seriously. The North American Christians, some of them comment, 
has, has absorbed the message from our culture that we can be simply content in our own luxury. And these voices, these people that are commenting, they invite us to take James seriously, to not soften these words, to, to think of how we can be resisting our cultural messages towards luxury, towards self-indulgence. Now, how can we do that? Um, I think one of it is just naming generosity. That generosity isn't just a, a selfish thing that we do so that we can show how generous we are, but generosity is fundamentally about a posture towards other people. It's saying, what I have, what I have been gifted by God has meant for sharing with others. It draws us out of a self-centered way of living. It draws us out of isolation and towards uh, community. Uh, this is something, again, that's repeated over and over again in Scripture. I can think of passages like Isaiah 5, verse 8, uh, where it says it kind of has that similar um, prophetic beginning that James starts with in the beginning of chapter 5. He says, Woe to you! who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That this is hoarding and this accumulating. It doesn't just stink. It has isolated these people. There, there's no one to live with in the land anymore because they have simply gathered it all for themselves. That's what Isaiah says to, to the wealthy person in Israel. It has pushed away community, and has pushed them towards loneliness. And it's no secret in the Western world that, that we are people who are experiencing some pretty deep symptoms of loneliness. Uh, there's, this is a cover from just uh, last month's copy of the banner, A Lonely World. It has some commentary in it of, of the world's increasingly lonely, especially the Western world, in the midst of its wealth, that, that indulging ourselves have had a way of training ourselves to see us as the center of our reality. Whether this is indulging in entertainment or kind of our distraction through our devices, whether it's indulgement in, in food or uh, the, the finer things, these can have a way of teaching us that we are at the center In generosity, we're invited to counter that. Rather than spoiling ourselves with luxury, we can intentionally see how we have been gifted to share. Now, ultimately, of course, our passage points even beyond this, to be open to God's will, to what God's plan is in all things. James is wisdom literature, after all, and, and wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with God's good intention for creation, for people to seek and to follow his will, not only to know what God's will is, but, but to be able to follow it, to live into it in really practical ways. It's the biblical vision of what leads to wholeness. Wholeness is first and foremost something that we come to in abiding in the one who is life itself. Uh, we trust God as the one who is able to mend us in ways that we've strayed, in the ways that we have taken our desires in the wrong ways. 
Our series is titled Undivided, and this is just another lens, another way that we can look at it. Being undivided is a movement towards alignment between God's will and the things that we do. That movement towards it, there's no longer that division on either side. I've had the visual behind me. It's, it's drawing those things together so that they are under God's singular kind of will and purpose. This comes out in James chapter 4, kind of at the tail end, where he gives this therefore type of statement kind of culminate his argument in chapter 4, he says, So then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. Now, within this, we have the sense of there is a good that you ought to do, that, that there is a following of God's will that, that we are meant to live into. And the lack of following that is sin, the person who is so fixed on their own plan that they can't consider God's will is entering into sin. And this, that one sentence has, has enough for, for multiple messages in it. Uh, it carries within it some pretty big implications. Uh, sometimes when we think of sin, we can think of its, its actions that we do, that there's kind of a yes or no list, and as long as we don't do anything on the no list, then we're fine. But this points towards this idea that there are things that we are meant to be doing, that we can neglect the things that we are meant to do, and that that can be considered sin. Uh, We have this reminder quite regularly, actually, in our services, in our times of confession and assurance. Uh, There's a form that we sometimes will follow or, or a liturgy that we'll read, And it sounds like this. Let's see if you can catch the part where it talks about uh, what James is naming here. The form says, Merciful God, we confess that we have, uh, we confess to have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. Of course, it's right here in what we have left undone. There's this idea that even the things that we don't do, the things that we neglect, um, are sin, and and that opens up sin in kind of some terrifying ways. Um, In looking at the ways that that Christians have left things undone, Calvin Seminary, uh, former president, um, Cornelius Plantinga, has this to say. Just give some examples here. We do not welcome strangers into the lives of our homes. We do not go out to meet them. We do not inform ourselves of events abroad and cannot locate them on maps and contexts. We dismiss the needs of future generations. We have never dealt seriously with the homeless person. We do not grieve over the news stories of poverty or starvation. And we make only token efforts to relieve such suffering by our charity. Again, this is kind of this list of the things that are not being done, our neglect 
of doing something, not necessarily actively doing something wrong. He goes on to say that these Christians, they claim allegiance to Christ who speaks in active imperatives, go, tell, witness, declare, proclaim. We Christians nonetheless prefer to keep the bread of life in our own cupboard and to speak of it only to those who have already have it. Having material possessions and failing to give displays what James would name as the divided person, uh, something that, that Proverbs also talks about and addresses something that we see throughout Scripture. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold the good from those to whom it's due when it is in your power to act, where we're supposed to not withhold the good that we can do. Uh, but perhaps a, a passage that's worth dwelling on a little bit more, especially in its connection with James, comes from 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, 16 starts in a really familiar place. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But then it goes on. It keeps going to what this looks like. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Uh, there's this, this movement towards action, this movement towards love of neighbor that is implicit with the one who has encountered God's grace and God's love. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. John, in this passage, is underscoring what Proverbs and what James already have spoken. This person who's encountered God's grace and God's goodness responds in generosity to those around them. Self-centered living is no longer an option for those who have been rescued from sin. They've been rescued from these destructive ways of living. For followers of Jesus, there are some very social implications here. To be sure, these actions, though, have their root in God's grace. Any sort of action must flow from this vital commitment to the gracious God who redeems the world through Jesus. It's only in humbling ourselves before him, again, as we remind ourselves of that earlier part in James chapter 4, in humbling ourselves before him and submitting to God's work in us that we have life. These, these good deeds are important, but they are done as this embodiment into the good news as those who have received God's grace, as those who have the Holy Spirit working in us, we can proceed then to be that blessing. And to finish, I want to kind of end on a positive note because this whole sense, it's kind of a little bit scary, all of these things that we leave undone kind of heap on too much pressure onto ourselves, okay, then I need to do everything and I don't think that's what it's drawing us towards. In thinking of this more positively, we can think of the good that we ought to do and how we can open up our imaginations, open up our minds to the many different ways that we can live into the Christian hope. Christianity is not just a, about following a list of do's and don'ts. 
There's this creative and nearly infinite ways that we can go out and love our neighbor. It's as diverse as our neighborhoods and our varied experiences. Welcoming the strangers into our homes, going out to meet them, informing ourselves of the needs of the world, allowing that to affect our hearts and to seek change in the world because of it, taking to account the needs of the generation that is coming next. All of these things are opportunities to live into the goodness that God equips us for. To finish, I'm actually going to read through that prayer of confession and assurance, and we're going to have a time where we can come before God in confession. And I want us to kind of specifically uh, to draw to mind the things we've left undone. But we're going to do so knowing that the words of forgiveness are coming, that we ask God to forgive us. And as it goes, it will say, and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. There's this movement that it calls us to, that as forgiven people, as people who rely on the Holy Spirit, uh, that God calls us to live into that will. So I also invite you to consider what's, what's one way that God may be prompting you and calling you into pursuing his will and pursuing his goodness. With that, let's come before God in prayer. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are. And direct us to what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We pray that you are the God who continues to show how you are calling us into ways of being a blessing in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our church. And we pray this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.